Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we've got a conversation with Eric Murdoch for this episode. Eric is the Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs for the Access Fund, and he invited me to come up to Estes Park to do this interview. We did it the same day, uh, right before we did the Tommy Caldwell interview, and Eric lives just down the road from Tommy, so it was a really a perfect uh, kind of one-two. And Eric and Tommy work closely together on uh, advocacy uh, in various ways. This was another conversation I was a bit intimidated to have because I think when you start to talk about policy, um, there's just so many details. It's, it's like talking to a lawyer. Um, so I tried to ask questions um, that people would want to hear and um, just really hear the story from behind the scenes of how Bears Ears National Monument was created and how it was created with the Bears Ears Indo-Tribal Coalition, climbers and tribes working together. And I know there's more than even we got out of this, and I will be talking to some other people that have been involved in this process, but I got a lot out of this conversation. Um, I hope you guys do too. And it just highlights really the Access Fund's work to keep our climbing areas open and also building uh, collaborations with other communities like the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. We are in the middle of our Keep the Zine Alive campaign. Uh, this last week and a half has been incredible with support. We're trying to add a thousand new subscribers. I think as recording of this, we added 130 just in the last week and a half. And we're also boosting up our Patreon uh, supporters. We've got $100 of support there now. We're trying to get to 1000 That will allow us to continue to interview people like Eric Murdoch, Tommy Caldwell, Kaya Lindsay, and we got other, some other great guests coming um, this year, so we're excited about that too. Um, but please check the links in your show notes or check our website, climbingzine.com, to see how you can keep the zine alive and keep this podcast alive. This episode is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from, with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homeboard layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set... Tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos, and even add your own. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the Climbing Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado and the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. For more information, check out osprey.com. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, 
everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners. And really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. All right, let's get into this conversation with Eric Murdoch. All right, we are here in Estes Park uh, with Eric Murdoch. And uh, Eric, what uh, what's going on here? We're sitting in your your lovely home. Yeah, we're in we're in the house, looking at this fire, uh, and I'm getting ready to talk about bears ears and whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much. Yeah, we survived a harrowing snowstorm to get up here, and I've been meaning to interview Tommy Caldwell for a long time, and it just hasn't quite happened with just the world being the way it is, and I want to do it in person. And you heard the Chris Schulte interview, and you were like, you want to hear more about the uh, logistical side of Bears Ears from the Access Fund perspective and the policy perspective, and uh, now here we are. So thanks for uh, motivating to get us up here. And Sean is uh, Sean Matasavich, uh, publisher emeritus of the Climbing Zine, is back from his hiatus. He's been raising raising children, and uh, he's back. So we might have some questions from him too. Um, and this is very much an onsite because we just met five minutes ago. And unlike Tommy Caldwell, I haven't watched <laughs> movies about your life or read articles. So um, I'd, I'd love to just hear like where where your passion for for climbing began. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think I started climbing in 1989 when I was a, when I was a freshman in college, and uh, kind of dabbled a little bit. wasn't that serious, but got really serious about it when when I moved to Tempe, Arizona. And I went to Arizona State University to, uh, to get a master's in geology. And that's when I, I, I started really um, getting addicted to climbing. And I climbed a lot at Oak Flat and uh, studying geology and being a geologist and being interested in other issues. Oak Flat was a really interesting spot. Um, and then, you know, traveled around a lot and, and, and climbed a lot throughout my 20s. Um, then ended up, uh, moving to Joshua tree. I got a job as a social scientist in Joshua tree and spent a bunch of seasons studying how climbers move through landscapes. Um, and then, uh, eventually took a job with the access fund after working for the BLM and the forest service and thinking about recreation, um, did some geology in, in the, in the middle, in between all that. And, uh, and I've been at the access fund for eight years. Now I'm the vice president of policy and government affairs. Right on, right on. Um, what were what were some of the interesting uh, things you got into in Joshua Tree when you were working there? Climbing wise or profe- or, or, or research wise? Uh, anything, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to me, that was one of the one of the highlights of of my climbing career. Certainly, was being able to climb, you know, three hundred days a year and really getting to know a place intimately. I worked with a band of of climbers who I was paying in. Um, used Patagonia clothing 
that Patagonia, um, not even new clothing. No, not new. It was returns. <laughs> At the time, they, they, I got the, the people who sponsored the research were like Patagonia, Matoli. I can't even remember all of them. There was that book, Chessman Books. Do you remember that 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 outfit? Is it still around? Mm. Really extensive um, collection of climbing books. Anyway, I had an odd assortment of sponsors and would would have various things. And Patagonia sent us a bunch of returned boxes and boxes of returned clothing and i was getting people to do about a week of research for an item of clothing <laughs> and um they would go out and, and inventory um the wilderness climbing areas and we would we would monitor how people were moving through landscapes and try to understand destination choice and um yeah it was a great experience and i got to climb pretty much every day for several years and that's awesome and you met sean I met Sean there. He actually, yeah, I, I, I rented a house from, uh, I rented a house that was built by Todd Swain, actually, if you know him. It's Todd by, Swain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Author of maybe one of the worst guidebooks ever, that Red Rocks guidebook. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah we used to always give that guidebook a hard time. Anyways, well, Todd he, Swain, I'm sure he's a nice guy. He's <laughs> a great guy. He built a house. He sold it to someone else, and then I rented it right outside of Joshua Tree, and uh, I had a room for rent, and I don't know. How, I, I knew all the dirt bags in, in, in uh, Hidden Valley Campground. And that's how I met Sean, and, and he rented a room. I love it. 20, 20 plus years ago. Dang, dang. And how did your work transfer? You said you've kind of got a, a passion for geology and then moving into working with policy. How does, how does that, how did your, it seems like kind of what your life, your life's work is at this point policy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. my focus. Um, and and when, when did that like, was was that just a, a career kind of choice or was it like a passion? Like policy is something where I feel like I could make a difference in the world. It took a long while. I didn't even know what policy was, frankly, when I was, when I was started off in college, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to do something outside. I was really interested in public lands. I was really interested in, in nature. I grew up in Washington, DC and, and in high school, I had a great experience of riding. I rode my bike across the country with my older brother, and that was my first time seeing Yosemite, Yellowstone, Rocky. Actually, we we, we rode right by this house here. That was the first time I was wow. I was in Rocky <laughs> when I was 16, and that really piqued my interest in the West and public lands. And and then um, when I got to college, I just wanted to do something outside, and that was the obvious choice: geology. So I, so I was working as a geologist for a long time, and in the late 90s, when the when the copper prices tanked, gold prices tanked. A lot of geologists were getting laid off, and I was looking for other things to do. And I, I took a job as a geologist for the Bureau of Land Management in Winnemucca, Nevada. Hmm. You know, north central Nevada, in the middle of nowhere. That was the only job I could get. Uh-huh. And I just started working for the BLM. I was, I was inventorying abandoned mines. Hmm. Sometimes I had to put on like a Tyvek suit and, and hmm. be around a ban- uh, toxic chemicals. And while I was there, I met someone who worked in the office who was, who was working as a recreation manager. And I, I didn't even know what that was. Mm-hmm. And I learned about that. And after I left the BLM, I enrolled at the University of Arizona in the uh, Department of Natural Resources, studying recreation and geographic information science. I was really curious as to what it would be like to combine sort of like quantitative hard science, or social science, and, and qualitative um, work. Um, so that was, that was what I was interested in doing at the same time, the, the, the bolting in, in, in national forest service land was exploding. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of the controversy, not the, not the bolting itself. Um, if folks remember back in 1999, 2000, there was a big negotiated rulemaking, a big process in the Forest Service, and they were trying to figure out what to do with us. And there was money in that, and, and people wanted to pay for research. And so I proposed to do a big study on Forest Service land, and I was down in Tucson, Arizona. I proposed to do some work at um, Mount Lemmon and some other places. And I was about ready to start my research, my doctoral research. I had it all lined up. And I got a call from a guy in Joshua Tree. It was, a, it was the chief law enforcement ranger. And he said to me, look, we need that work done in Joshua Tree. If you want to do it, we will fund your entire doctoral research. You just come to Joshua Tree. I hadn't climbed that much in Joshua Tree. I didn't realize how much I loved it. I was like, all right, let me think about this. He's like, you got to decide now. You got to be here on Monday. <laughs> and it was, it was like Wednesday the week before. I packed up, moved to Joshua Tree. Did three years of doctoral research, and uh, and that's where I started to sort of understand that it's not all about the facts. I knew I knew I had a pretty good idea of how climbers were moving through landscapes, what they what they were trying to do, what the implications of bolts were, and I knew all sorts of things that you could quantify. But in the end, a lot of that stuff doesn't mean shit. And 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 what's really important are sort of like when you can combine that with stories and compelling. Um, social issues and, 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 and have an understanding of other policy. And that's when I started realizing there's more to it. There's more to, um, affecting change in the, on, on our natural resource management than just doing some social science. And that's when I started to think about, um, resource management in other places. And that led to this and that led to this like idea, okay, um, I should be, I should be in policy. And I think it's been really helpful that, that my path has not been, traditional and I had no idea I want to go in policy because often I'm the only person in the room who has experience, you know, drilling, you know, holes in the ground and, and, and working as a wilderness manager and doing social science. So that kind of like odd assortment of skills is valuable. And when I hire staff at the access fund, I'm looking for odd assortment of skills. You know, we have a woman who, who can protect you from bears and she did that in Alaska and we have someone who's an expert in, you know, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. We've got an attorney who, 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 who studied a lot of these things. So we are looking for, for a, a breadth of experience. Uh -huh. and, and that's the team that sort of I built around me in, in, in the last eight years. That's incredible. And what would you say the major differences or the state of policy in climbing, how that's evolved in the last 20 years? Because we're all sitting in a room. I, I'm guessing we have between the three of us, maybe 70 years climbing experience. You said 89. I started climbing in 99. Um, there's a lot more climbers. What What do you think the biggest changes have been in the last 20 years with like the issues that public land managers are looking at, and then the level of engagement from you know the Access Fund, American Alpine Club, um, LCOs, yeah. et cetera. So I'll start, you know, 20 years, that just puts us back at 2000, you yeah. know, and, and, uh, by 2000, you know, the, the forest service was already, was trying to figure out what to do with this. And by the way, that story, you know, they, they had this, this process and they brought a bunch of stakeholders together who had interesting things to say about climbing. And the way that process works is, is if they don't reach consensus, if everyone doesn't agree, they don't use the outcome. Mm -hmm. So we have these transcripts from those from those 1999 and 2000 discussions, but it really didn't turn into anything in the Forest Service. Um, it did eventually evolve into BLM and Park Service policy, but nothing until perhaps this year 
within the Forest Service. But in the last 20 years, I mean, the big thing is there's a lot more climbers, of course. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think it's, it's, it has to do with, with the number of gyms. You know, we have 500 gyms in this country. But it's just that we have a lot more climbers. But it's not just that. It's that we have a lot more people going into our public lands in general. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who have, um, who should be out, you know, in, in, in these spaces. And, but um, people are, are bumping into each other. There's a lot of social conflicts. Everyone's vying for the same slice of the pie. Mm. And, um, and I think the combination of there being more climbers and more pe- people being out there is causing all sorts of issues social issues, environmental issues. Um, and, and these things are exacerbated by what's going on in the government and what's going on in the world with climate change and going on with wildfire. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are compounding, maybe even the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we're at a point right now where land managers are, um, are really eager to implement some, some, some pretty you know strong strategies to help them out. And not all of them are in the best interest of the climbing community specifically. Mm. That's the big change. Yeah. You know, I think in the next couple of years, you know, we're already seeing a lot more permits, timed entry permits to get into places. We're seeing more processes that are being implemented in terms of um, authorizing fixed anchors, authorizing climbing in general. And that's a trend that is going to continue. Mm-hmm. Well, I do really want to nerd out on uh, Bears Ears because as I was explaining about the podcast, um, you know, there's been many, many um, storytelling episodes where I'm just kind of telling my personal story of uh, what that place means to me and then, you know, weaving in different elements of of friendship and um, adventures and different things like that. And that's how we first kind of connected after the Chris Schulte interview is that you wanted to talk about bear's ears. And I think the general public kind of is aware of somewhat of the story, but I would love to hear from you the story of how kind of bear's ears coalesce between different, different groups. And from the policy perspective, like the story that I guess you would tell about bear's ears. Yeah, it's a big question. You know, I, I, I'm friends with Chris and I was chatting him with him about something, um, and I listened to that podcast. and And Chris has been really helpful. Um, he's done a variety of things for for the Access Fund and helped me out. We've been to DC together, um, and um, right, he knows he knows a lot of the inside scoop. But 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 um, when I listened to that interview, I thought, man, I think people might be interested in hearing a little bit more about this. And we are, and I think that's what's so cool about the climbing community is that we all kind of have our roles of loving a place and then wanting to do something for it. And for some of us, it is storytelling for some of us. It's just, you know, conveying to your social media audience of how to interact with the landscape. But yeah, I would just love to hear your perspective of bears ears from in not necessarily a short version. Like I I would just love to hear, yeah, every kind of like the beginning of the journey and and where it's kind of at now. Yeah. So the beginning of the journey for me, was was not the beginning of the journey um i started working on this this issue in 2013 or so but it but it but it it starts for climbers of course way way before that i mean really it starts when 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 folks started exploring and putting up roots and 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 starting to recognize the place as this 
otherworldly climbing area. And that lasted, I guess, I guess that was 70s, right? Late 60s. And, and, and um, for a very long time, of course, we all know that, that um, different conservationists have proposed that area to be protected. Protected more, you know, the, the, the idea of like, what is protection? There's been a lot of misinformation out there. You know, mm-hmm. they made it a wilderness area. They made it a mine. You know, let's be clear. You know, this is, this is Bureau of Land Management land. Mm-hmm. And the monument status that it is now is laid on top of that. It's always been, it's always been federal land. So there's no land grab. That's I'm 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 talking about that specifically to sort of clarify that never has the government stolen that land besides from the original Native Americans. Exactly. Yeah. But um, that is the the narrative that many um, like conservative Utah residents and politicians they want to convey that that's that right. narrative and. Right. When we talk about the land being stolen, we can talk about the land being stolen from 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 the many tribes um, that live there. But it was not stolen from the residents of Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, this is federal land, BLM land, regular mm-hmm. BLM land. There's some interesting designations in there, recreation management areas and stuff. But that whole landscape, you know, over a million acres is, is regular BLM land. You can go out there and, and stake a claim. And I used to do things like that. Right. You You and I could go out there and four sticks in the ground and give the BLM, you know, 150 bucks, 180 bucks, and we can start mining. So, so that area has been exploited for uranium, for oil and gas and other interesting minerals for a long time. And one of the interesting um, analyses that, 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 that I was involved in, actually Chris was involved in, and also I was working with Google to, to build a visualization of the interaction between the designated areas, the designated places in that whole southern Utah and oil and gas development. Mm-hmm. And we showed over these ta- time-lapse video, oil and gas wells being drilled over the last hundred years. They'd be drilled in one place and then next to it, uh, a wilderness area would be designated, you know, in, 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 the, in the 70s. And then there'd be another place. So you can sort of see that push and pull of, of, of environmental protection and, and resource exploitation. And actually, Chris Schulte, I, I needed someone with a really good voice to do the narration, so I got him to speak on this Google, on this, on this, uh, this Google app. That's awesome. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah. I, I'll share it with you. Is cool. It, yeah. Um, but, but uh, so for a long time, there's been this push and pull, and we've known, and many environmentalists have 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 known that that is, you know, a really important place to protect, not just because of the interesting natural resources, but of course, because of the traditional values. You know, there's been a variety of, of, of proposals in, in, in the past, actually it's been the past 80 or 100 years um, for, for protecting that area. So this is nothing new. People mm-hmm. say, oh my God, they just came up with this idea to protect this place. Not so. But our, our real, um, well, I should go back, you know, and, and then about 20 years ago, Friends of uh, Indian Creek was established. Mm-hmm. Help, uh, Jason Keith of the Access Fund helped found that. You know, we started doing more stewardship work and being like, well, you know, what are the ways we can help this place? And, 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 and people were doing a lot of trail work and working with the BLM and trying to make, make sure that place was, was sustainable and resilient because the writing was on the wall. I mean, obviously, we've all been there. It's, you know people want to go there and 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 the and the, the 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 environment is so fragile it needed it needed to be um needed to be assisted in order to accommodate the amount of people that might be interested in going there and and um when the access fund really started 
um, thinking seriously about jumping on board and endorsing or helping to develop legislation to protect that area, we were working on a large bill. It was called the Public Lands Initiative. Mm-hmm. Have you are you familiar with that? I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I have a environmental studies and recreation degree yeah. from the early 2000s. So all of those things like ring a bell, but so you could oh, yeah. probably give this talk, but, but <laughs> no, but, no, 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 no. But, but that was an interesting, that was another example of, 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 of how recreation kind of crosses the aisle. It's not a democratic or Republican thing. Everyone, everyone appreciates recreation. And that bill was, was of course sponsored by um, Congressman Bishop at the oh, time, right. yeah. you know, who, who, was controversial character in, in, in the environmental world to say the least. And he was um, a, a, a state, a Senator from Utah or a Congressman, a Congressman. Yeah. He was a congressman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that bill essentially was a large scale a proposed solution for protecting seven counties in Eastern, Northeastern, Eastern and, and Southeastern um, Utah. And we, we really, um, wanted to see robust protections for a variety of places mm-hmm. in eastern Utah, including including the Bears Ears region. And um, in that bill, I believe um, that area would have been designated as a national national conservation area, mm-hmm. and it would have included a mineral withdrawal, which means you can't stake those claims and 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 do exploration for oil and gas and uranium. And those were the things, the types of things that we were mostly concerned about. Mm-hmm. And I had a background in that, so I, I kind of understood like what what was at stake there. And we worked with with those congr- with those Utah congressional offices to try to flesh out that bill and and make it viable. And there were some problems with the bill. And an example of that would be like a, what we would consider a poison pill. The bill would say, we're going to protect all this land, but you can never use the Antiquities Act in Utah. They did that in Wyoming. You know, that, that's something that passed. So that means you'd never be able to have a monument in Utah. We were like, ah, we're, we're not comfortable with that. We can't, we, we, we can't endorse a bill that doesn't, that, that withdraws the ability of, of the state of Utah to use the, 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 the Antiquities Act, which is, of course, the act that allows the president the ability to create a national monument. Which is, yeah, the, the act that was used to, by Obama to create in the end, to create Bears Ears National yeah. Monument, yeah, yeah. So we first, the you know, the most democratic way, or 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 the or the most robust way, although although the Antiquities Act is robust, also, is to is to get everyone in Congress on board mm-hmm. to vote this thing in, right? Mm-hmm. To pass this bill. Okay, we're going to protect this area, but that didn't happen, and we we held on to this idea that 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 we might be able to legislate protections for that area. Um, we stood, you know, Obama allowed, allowed that bill to play out also. Mm-hmm. And while that was happening, there was this growing campaign, growing interest in like, we got to protect this area. And in 2014, the Intertribal Coalition wrote this incredible proposal to the president asking President Obama to create a monument for this large area. They were proposing for a much larger area, 1.9 million acres, I believe. And that happened in 2014. Um, and... And the the intertribal coalition is the Bears Ears intertribal coalition, five different Native American tribes that came together to protect their, essentially their ancestral homelands. Yeah. yeah. So so there's five. Tri- right. The Navajo, the the Zuni, the Hopi, the Ute Mountain Ute, and the Ute. 
they're the intertribal coalition, and actually, the Bears Ears intertribal coalition is a non, is a, is a, is another organization, mm. which is interesting, which, which gets really confusing. And mm-hmm. we have a really good relationship with them, but they're the ones that sort of implement a lot of these uh, the actions on management plans and other things. But we'll, we can talk about that later. But um, but a lot of conservation groups were jumping on board and endorsing this this monument. You know, they were ditching this public lands initiative. Mm. And um, and we thought we just got to hold on. Maybe this thing will go. You know, we do, we we, we want to maintain relationships with these congressional offices. We want to make sure to respect the tribes. But we just we just we're not sure if this is the right move. And and at mm-hmm. the time, the executive director of the Access Fund was Brady Robinson, a good friend of mine. And mm-hmm. I worked for him for the first five years or so at the Access Fund. And he was asking us really hard questions, Jason Keith and I, about you know, should when sh- should we endorse this thing? Is it too late? Is it too early? Should we do it? What if what if we endorse this thing and they ban climbing? You know w- w- what's going to happen. So we we realized that in order to really get comfortable with this idea, we were going to have to develop a, a, a relationship with the tribes, mm-hmm. and that's when we started to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started reaching out to the Intertribal Coalition and asking them for meetings. And our first meeting was a, was a was a was an overflight. Someone donated some airplanes and we met them out in moab the airport mm-hmm. got in planes we put like three climbers and two you know medicine men and leaders el- elders and flew around for a little bit chatted came down switched switch teams wow flew around and just that was the beginning of being like all right we can see how to and over several months a year started to develop this this close relationship where the intertribal coalition started to trust that the climate community had the best interests um for the area in mind and 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 had their backs and could work with you know the climate community could work with the intertribal coalition and um they eventually wrote a letter to the secretary of the interior sally jewell mm-hmm. saying we support climbing Climbers, we believe climbers are, have our interest, are, 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 are good actors. We believe that we can work with climbers. And we endorsed the monument. And we thought this is going to be, this is an important moment for us. And, and, that's, and that's sort of how it began, you know, this, this, this next phase of then working with the Obama administration. I moved to D.C. So, you know, to work um, with the administration, going down to the Department of Interior and working with, with the with various folks in the Obama administration to make sure they understand where where recreation is and what the needs of the climate community was and eventually in December of 2016 Obama designated the monument listed climbing as an acknowledged activity listed us first and that's the that's the first time that's ever happened in the the proclamation of a national monument or a it's national a, park yeah that's the yeah. first time that's the first time climbing's ever been acknowledged in that way and what is it the first time that um, Native American tribes have led the designation of a national monument to? That's the first, yeah, Bears Ears is the Those. first time that, that, it's the first time that, as far as I know, the tribes have gotten together, built a coalition, and pushed for um, a monument designation. So two just huge historic things in our in our world of huge historic things and yeah. the interesting thing is look at where we are now right. now so that that was this this monumental no, no pun intended uh, achievement and look at us now the secretary of interior is native american the head of the park service is native american it's top issue would you i mean like so literally in the last since 2015 so the last seven years it, there's been a global shift mm-hmm. in in how the climbing community and the conservation community 
and our public land agencies relate to these sort of I- issues that yeah. associate that related to, to to indigenous rights, indigenous tribes. And and I kind of want to go back to that era of <laughs> when the the monument. Um, protections were taken away by the Trump administration or rescinded, I guess, whatever, whatever word you want to use. Um, and with, you know, perspective, we didn't know that there was going to be, you know, if Trump would have continued to be president, we would not have national monument status that we have today. What was, maybe we would, or maybe we would. Okay. Um, because yeah, I guess that's a whole nother conversation because it could have been settled by the courts we can win our law anyway. Yeah, we'll, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll it talk, feels we'll like about that. I, I've been studying it and thinking about it for years, and it's great to talk to you because there's still so much. But I do want to go back to that time period of of whatever 2000. We're talking early 2017 when you know Trump came to Salt Lake City and said that we are shrinking this monument, changing the name of it, so on and so forth. What were things looking like from your perspective? I mean, like just to, as a climber and a, a person in the public, I was like angry about it. You know, I thought it was the wrong decision. As someone who put so much effort into creating it and, and putting so much work into it, what was your feelings on it then just as like from a perspective of, of something that was created and then kind of take, taken, taken away? away? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was frustrating. It was a lot of work. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm thinking back on some of these stories. You know, after we endorsed the monument, we were we were we we were fully supporting the Intertribal Coalition and doing everything we could to get this to get um, to get the monument designated. You know, we we attended um, the Access Fund sent we, I, we we brought five or six people, including Aaron Mike, our Native Lands Coordinator, Brady, um, Jason Keith, Katie Goodwin, a bunch of us went down to Bluff to 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 it to the public meeting and that was a really powerful meeting it's where sally jewel sat for eight hours mm-hmm. 120 degree heat mm-hmm. felt that way in in this in this large auditorium and bluff with no cooling and she listened to as many people who wanted to testify as possible mm-hmm. and we we threw aaron mike um up and up 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 front and that was the first time that that he spoke um on behalf of the access fund on behalf of the climbing community and he gave this incredibly passionate um, testimony about being a Native American climber. And I remember I was just I was watching Sally Jewell at the time, and she was she was engrossed by it. And years later, she I, I ran into her, and she said she remembered that testimony. It was powerful. And just leading up to this whole thing, just different people were sort of growing. Aaron was 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 learning things. The Access Fund was was we were we were becoming closer together amongst ourselves. We were putting everything into it. Um, we were traveling a lot. We were flying to D.C. We were t- we were taking any meeting. We were talking with with politicians and stakeholders. We had meetings with the climbing community. We held a public a meeting with I don't know thirty or so climbers in Moab. We were we were always trying to get the pulse. We were pinching ourselves all the time, thinking, "Is this the right? Are we doing the right thing?" Mm-hmm. The stakes were so high mm-hmm. that we were constantly gut checking ourselves. And 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 Brady was a, was an incredible leader at the time. Um, and it was great to have Jason Keith based in Moab also. So we had the perfect team. I was in, I was in DC and Brady was, was, was running the show and Jason was in Moab and we had, we had Aaron Mike, you know, coming up to speed and giving these. So we were really, um, it was a great time in the access fund. We were really firing all, not all cylinders. 
and it was and it was incredible um you know after obama designated des wrote the after we saw the proclamation and saw that climbing was listed and we were riding high for a moment and then it became really clear that that it wasn't going to last and we knew so this goes this is the answer to your question you know we knew obviously when um trump signed an order to review the monuments that bears ears was not gonna was not gonna last you know i i think obama knew this was going to happen and i think that obama listed climbers first it wasn't in alphabetical order i mean they, they knew we put everything into it they listed us first in the list of in the list of um recreation groups and i think it was a call to action you know we mm -hmm. took it really seriously i think obama was saying climbers i know this thing is going to uh is going to be um it's going to be a battle you know and i think that 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 list of of recreation groups in the proclamation was calling upon those groups to uh to defend the monument why so, have we never seen Obama climbing anywhere? Have <laughs> you guys ever taken it? Like, <laughs> Obama was in Yos Obama was in Yosemite, and 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 his kids climbed. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Gator, Gator, like set it up. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. After That's that. great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wish I was there. Um, yeah. We've tried to take various, but we've taken a couple politicians. Climbing, but, yeah, I've heard but, that. Yeah, yeah. My friend B uh, Byron Harvison said he took um, Curtis, um, John Curtis, and uh, Liz Cheney. Oh, Liz Cheney. Yeah, I didn't he said know he took Liz Cheney climbing. I'd like to yeah. go climbing with Liz Cheney. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be good for in the International Climbing Festival. We, I think, you know, the American Alpine Club organized that. Amelia Howe, she did a great job. I think she invited Liz Cheney, but but she didn't she didn't show up. She, she didn't. Byron didn't give her a very good play. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe he didn't give. Yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, where were we on this? Oh, so. well, yeah, just just talking about um, when the you know pomp and circumstance of you know the reduction in the monument. What what is then the plan? Because I know that the so, there was a lawsuit. Um, well, to back yeah. up, so yeah. when that review was ordered, we knew that we knew what the outcome was going to be, mm -hmm. and there was some there was some um, some some pretty sketchy things going on in the government. Like when the government when 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 the Zinke you know oh no, Zinke uh, Ryan Zinke was the Secretary of right. Interior, and, Trump, right. and some of the analyses that they were doing were, were just not correct. They were they were doing geological analysis that were showing there's there is no there is no mineral there are no, there there are no minerals there is no oil and gas. Well, we know there's plenty of oil and gas. Matter of fact, after the monument was rescinded, a bunch of ex, a bunch of oil and gas companies proposed to lease some of these some of the areas that were that that were lost. You know some some of the areas that that were no longer in the monument. So if there was no reason to have, you know, oil and gas, if there were if there were no, no oil and gas, that wouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. So that was going on, um, and we were we were watching it at the time. You know, groups of conservationists and and recreationists and companies were coming together. So I remember before that happened, I went with Brady to the North Face. Um, it was when the North Face had a campus down in, in, up in the Bay Area mm. before they moved to, to Denver. And, and we met with, uh, I can't remember all the companies. It was like Keene and Patagonia and North Face and a couple others. And uh, just talked about, how, what are we going to do about this review? Should we write a letter and have it signed by industry? Is that going to be, is that going to impact this? You know, does Zinke even care if, 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 if Yvonne Chouinard writes a letter to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and what is the position of the outdoor industry, and how can the outdoor industry sort of um, come together uh, for the first time? So, so there's this interesting silver lining to all these things. This this issue brought the entire outdoor industry together mm -hmm. in a way that that I don't think as as we've ever experienced before. 
and, we, and there was meetings going on and people were just sort of bracing themselves and everyone was rallying, you know, lawyer, lawyering up like mm -hmm. we were thinking about what we're going to do. We had time, right? We had this long review process and we knew what the outcome was going to be. So we were all, we were all set. You know, there was, there was, there was three main pods of, of, of plaintiffs, you know, there were the tribes and there was the sort of the big greens. And then there was these oddballs, Conservation Land Foundation, Access Fund, Patagonia, Friends of Cedar Mesa, the paleontologists, the, the, the Trust for Historical Preservation. We got together and we sort of represented a wide range of, 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 of stakeholders and people who have, who have a lot of stake in, 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 uh, in Bears Ears. And, um, yeah, when, when, um, when, when Trump, um, uh, signed his proclamation to reduce the, the monument by about 85%. We were ready to go. Mm -hmm. We let, we let the tribes announce, of course, we, we, it's been, a, 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 an important part of this entire process. We let the tribes decide on how, on how to move forward. We follow the tribes. We take the lead of the tribes. We want to partner up with those folks, um, on this issue. And, um, we waited for the tribes to announce what they were going to do. And then, and then we filed our lawsuit. And that's something, uh, like I said, I've been studying this forever, and I think so many climbers have, and it's it's just hard to get clarity um, sometimes because that lawsuit was filed, but that was never necessarily decided upon by the courts. Is that right? It's, it's at, we we haven't tried, we haven't dismissed it. It's so it's, it's still, still around. So yeah, yeah, it is there. It, the, the case has been stayed, so it's sort of sitting idle. You know, it's in the district court of of in, in Washington D.C. Judge Chutkin is is the is the is the judge who's, who's overseeing this case. Um, and essentially, you know, when, when, when Biden came in, remember, one of the first things he did was sign an order that said, I'm going to review this mm -hmm. situation. You know, that was, and, and we knew that, well, he's going to restore this monument. We thought he was, and it was, took forever. You know, a year went by and the tribes were getting really, um, really frustrated and we were getting frustrated and. And finally, of course, you know, the monument was was designated. But during that time, you know, they were saying, like, why don't you dismiss the case? And, you know, like the, the Department of Justice, of course, you know, and we were like, no, this is important because the case is really about whether our national monuments can be used um, in a ping pong match. Can one yeah. can one president designate the next person? So so, it's so not, why, let me back up yeah, to the Department of Justice. So why would they want you to dismiss the case? I mean, the case is, it's, we're, 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 we're suing them now. They oh, inherited the okay. case. Oh, we're suing, I see. Okay. suing the government. I at see. The time, it yeah. was, at the time, it was, it was, it was Ryan Zinke, the Secretary oh, of Interior, okay. but, but he left. But then we were suing, uh, you know, Secretary of Interior Bernhardt. Now we're suing Secretary of Interior Holland. It's those, those people I see. inherit the, the case. I see. Regardless, there's no resolution yet. And mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I think soon we'll, we'll, we'll figure out sort of where that's going to go. And but the case is not dismissed yet. Gotcha. And, and is the part of the case whether the president has the powers? Because the Antiquities Act says that a president can create a national park and a national monument. Just a monument. Just a monument. Okay. Um, is part of that lawsuit that they say that the president can create a national monument, but it can't just like rescind a national monument is that kind of a simple way of explaining it or is it a little more complicated than that yeah it's more complicated than that um it doesn't say that it can't rescind and you can it says that a president can create this national monument it also says some things about what that national monument needs to look like mm -hmm. right 
size or what you know smallest area compatible with the management so so there's there's some gray area but we have a, we have a really strong case because a variety of policies were passed over time i mean presidents have changed monuments you know in the past and pe and, and presidents have created giant monuments and that's why this idea that you can't create a, a one million acre monument well early monuments like the grand canyon that's mm -hmm. close to one million acres and that's a landscape and that's like way back in the early 1900s so so we had a really good case um and 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 in the in the 70s some 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 policy was passed to that um that indicates that that the secretary of interior cannot reduce a monument so it gives us a little bit of a clue you know that 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 that's not um that's not allowed but it is but uh that's why this case is really important is um i think when when the antiquities act was drafted they never imagined that um some jackass was going to reduce this monument mm -hmm. and maybe they would have maybe they would have um drafted a, a a clear legislation or maybe they just never imagined that this would happen not sure mm -hmm. but that's the situation we're in right now um and uh we're really happy that 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 biden just restored the monument back to the original boundaries plus about 11,000 acres that Trump added to actually one of those one of those small sections. Mm -hmm. So it's now it's, it's actually a little bit bigger than than what it was in, in under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. So he didn't reduce he didn't rescind any. He kept Trump's proclamation. Uh -huh. Just added to it. Right, right. Yeah, so so you you feel pretty good about where things are at right now and I'm guessing there's um I guess you could answer that question first like do you feel pretty confident that like the the side of the climbers, the access fund, the Bears Ears intertribal coalition, keeping Bears Ears National Monument. Do you feel pretty confident about that? No. Okay. Um, I guess this is the, <laughs> the second part no, of, of our, the conversation our, our, of our, where our, we're at. Yeah. The case was never, you know, is, is, hasn't, hasn't been resolved. Mm -hmm. And the state of Utah is mounting a campaign to sue Biden. Mm -hmm. And you know they've they've chosen they, uh, in in December they chose a law firm a conservative law firm in, in Utah and we have not yet seen the uh, the claim we haven't seen the the you know we 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 don't know we don't know exactly what they're going to say um, but uh, but it's really concerning um, that this is going to be uh, uh, you know litigated again mm -hmm. and then and then what if um, Another president is elected who wants to shrink this thing, so we're confident that we have we, we have a really good case, and we're confident that the Antiquities Act can only be used in 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 a, in a way that is not commensurate with the reductions. But you never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You never know. Mm -hmm. In do you think the reasons behind Utah suing the Biden administration? Does it just come down to oil and gas and, and energy extraction, or is, is there more deeper themes of why the government in Utah doesn't want this land to be protected? Well, I think it's 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 a combination of a lot of things. And 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 look, the the representatives for the districts where the monument is, the the, the federal representatives at least don't support the monument. You know. It's much cleaner. It's a much better situation when the people who live in an area support the protections. Mm -hmm. So, folks in Utah are, are angry. You know that 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 this designation um, 
was made without without their support. Yeah, you roll through Monticello and you see those like no monument yeah. stickers on the pickup trucks and yeah. things like that. So put yeah. yourself in, in their in their position. You know? Yeah. Um, you know when we go back and 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 this is has a long history. Obviously, the way Bears Ears was designated was very different than the way Grand Staircase was designated. Mm-hmm. Um, back when when President Clinton designated that, um, and that created yeah, a lot more effort or a lot more public information on on the Bears Ears process than the Grand um, Escalante Staircase. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, thanks for clearing that. Yeah. yeah. So there was obviously a lot of Clinton had some things going on in that era. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. Going on. <laughs> but you know, I lived in Kanab, and 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 um, that's where I worked for a little bit as a geologist, and and. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it turned out that the that the that that monument was really good for that community, but they didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. and they got this monument, this giant monument, thrust upon them. So there were a lot of people who were who were really um, really concerned about it. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's that same dynamic. Um, Utah does not, you know, they want to be the, the state wants to be in charge of designations, and they're not huge fans generally of 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 the federal government mm-hmm. there's been a variety of like for example back in that in that legislation that i was talking about originally before the designation of bears ears you know there were there were different um provisions in, in in bills that would allow the state to have jurisdiction over certain federal lands and you know there's there's a lot of different types of things that the state of utah um has been proposing to sort of take back the control of uh, federal lands so this is nothing new mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gosh, my mind is just kind of spinning. Do you have a question? That'd be perfect, Sean, because my mind is just kind of spinning right now. So it strikes me that we're in this uncomfortable stasis moment. But I'm I'm curious more about the resolution. If everything goes the way climbers and the access fund would like to see, how do you see this resolving, and what would that timeline look like? We never know what the timeline is going to look like, and that's, I think, the value of of the access fund. When we work with volunteers, they often, they're doing incredible work, but they can't hang in there for a decade. We don't expect that of them. And that's, and that's why I think the, a lot of people in the climbing community are comforted that, comforted that the Access Fund exists because we're willing to hang in there, whether it takes a year or 10 years, whether it takes 50 years, we're not going to stop protecting that area. We're going to be stewarding it. We're going to be protecting it. And there's going to be because of where it's located, there's going to be threats associated with Bears Ears forever, forever. So I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, we thought we resolved this when when Biden, you know, designated the restored the monument, and now the state of Utah is, is mounting a lawsuit. So we're gonna we're gonna roll with with whatever happens, and we're just gonna stick by a couple basic principles, and those are we're gonna stand by by the intertribal coalition. We're, we're, we're going to support the needs of the climbing community. And the climbing community, and we've done surveys on this, and, and, and the climbing community almost unanimously wants to protect Bears Ears. We're going to continue to steward Bears Ears. And regardless of these policies and laws and, 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 and designations, we're going to make sure that the land on the ground is stewarded as well as we can. We're going to put volunteers. We're going to put staff. We hire people to take care of that area. We're going to get grant funding. We're going to work with conservation corps, whatever it takes. So those are the things that we're thinking about, not how much time it's going to take, because when I'm gone, the next policy person is going to take this over. So this is this is we are in it for the long haul. Haul. So, and I think um, 
you know, the, 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 the Biden administration, the Obama administration, they recognize that. They recognize that the climbing community is all in on this. That's why it was really powerful when President Biden signed this, this, this proclamation that in the lead up speeches, climbers were acknowledged. Never had that at the White House. Climbers are being acknowledged for their health in protecting this area. So regardless of whether it's a, a Republican or a Democrat in, in, in the White House or controlling the, uh, or controlling the Congress, we just, we just continue to push on. That's it. What are some things that the general public can do and should do to support Bears Ears National Monument? Um, on the kind of micro yeah. level, yeah. I'm guessing I mean, number one is join the access fund. <laughs> I'd say go, go, yeah. go there. You know, go, yeah. go, go there and and enjoy it mm. for yourself. And that's and that's I think the most powerful way to grow conservationists and to get people to understand you know what's really at stake and 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 learn about about the area you know we're learning about the, 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 the other interesting thing about this whole process this whole campaign to protect bears ears is that the access fund has grown a lot the way we think about certain issues has evolved we've matured um in our in our understanding of traditional values and we encourage people to do the same because we believe that a better understanding of these things actually um, improves your recreation experience. It, it embellishes that your time down in the creek when you really understand these things. Um, we think that you know when there are healthy wildlife and, and intact cultural resources, you're going to have a better climbing experience. So, so, so you know that's that, that's what I think people should do and volunteer when when there's trail days and when there are management plans being developed so there's going to be a big management plan over the next couple of years being developed for indian creek learn a little bit about it and send in some comments say which i mean the, the the government the agencies do listen at least they 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 read and they acknowledge um what what, what you have to say so so stay involved in that and um and vote you know vote for people who are gonna who are gonna make the decisions that that, that you like on these types of issues um, those are just a couple of things that, that, that I think people can do that are really tangible, that actually make a difference. Oh, man, like I said, my, my head is kind of spinning from all that talking. I'm, I'm looking at we're almost hitting an hour here, and that, that just seemed like it just kind of like flew by in an instant. Are, are you hopeful for uh, Bears Ears like long term? Yeah. I mean, you know, we just... We just got uh, an, an environmental assessment approved to do a ton of new stewardship work. So we're going to be out there building trail, fixing up trails, um, making, uh, you know, climbing approaches and staging areas better to make sure that this, this area is more resilient to the number of climbers that want to visit it. And, and um, some of those trails are amazing. just beautiful. Like the, uh, the Scarface Trail actually like art. helped out a little bit on that. And then the... Um, um, what's that wall that's like a gun wall? Um, pistol that's whip. Like, that trail is like a step every single way, and you see the big rainstorms that roll through, and those trails are the only ones that like, like there was a big flash flood I think last summer, and 
so many trails had erosion, but those ones with the beautiful rock work were like the only ones that didn't have massive erosion. Yeah, those conservation teams are incredible. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're building just beautiful trails all over the country. They're setting the standard really high. Yeah, for absolutely. Other yeah, yeah. So, so this spring, we, we hired the um, Ancestral Lands Corps. So it's, so it's a conservation mm -hmm. corps, trail building crew of all Native Americans mm -hmm. who are going to be out there working for 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 a month or so don't know the details on that but but we're going to be committing to that we also hire some uh, climber stewards to right. do climber coffee that was and great them yeah, yeah. And educating people mm -hmm. um we are going to continue to protect bears here so you'll see what happens you know when the, after the state of utah if the state of utah files you know their 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 claim um then uh we'll have to figure out what to do on that will be involved in in the management plan like i said so so you know there's lots of things we just stay you you have to just show up to everything so i'm hopeful that that uh all of these efforts um really contribute to a to a to a sustainable bears ears sustainable indian creek into the future i think i think things are going to work out i think things are going to work out and i think in in 20 years when we're there we're going to look back on this time and 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 smile because it's going to be you know um, I think it's going to be a lot tighter and, 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 and it's going to still be available and accessible to us. Well, Jerry Seinfeld, Sean knows I love to quote Jerry Seinfeld, but he's got this bit about, uh, how lawyers are really the only ones that understand what's going on in our society. And the rest of us are just kind of running around and we don't know the rules. And I feel like you might not be a lawyer, but you are that person who understands what's going on at the highest levels of government and you're doing the work that we're all benefiting from. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for getting me and Sean up to Estes to, yeah, it was uh, good to hang you. out. Yeah. Thanks for the chat. I'm going to crack this homestead uh, access fund beer. Yeah. Enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. Folks are driving around Arizona in the wintertime. Stop by the homestead. That's another incredible climbing area that access fund completely saved. Tufas, right? Tufas, pockets, incredible landscape. Yep. Cheers, brother. See ya. All right, that was our conversation with Eric Murdoch. I really enjoyed that one. Like I said, I was a bit intimidated to dive into something like this when, you know, I don't know a ton about policy. But I do feel like I learned a lot with this conversation and, and we're just really lucky to have people like Eric and entities like the Access Fund who are fighting for our climbing areas and fighting for conservation and for the environment. Music from this episode is by Devin Dabney. Be sure to check out Devin's podcast, The American Climbing Project. And Devin's got a couple essays in the last two climbing zines as well. Actually, he's got an essay in volume 19 and volume 20. Um, great writer, great contributor to the climbing world. Check him out. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado, I'm Luke Mihal. Peace. <laughs>